This is the interview with G. William Hoagland for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University. We're in the Washington offices of Signet Corporation, and today is Tuesday, 7, and I'm Brian Williams. Let's your earliest contact recollections of Bob on the Senate scene. I was uh, a young uh, staffer who had... Uh, recently arrived on Capitol Hill with a new office that had been established called the Congressional Budget Office. That was an outcome of the uh, 1974 Congressional Budget Empowerment Control Act. Um, uh, I was a young, uh, uh, I had done my graduate work at Penn State in agriculture economics and I w had uh, done my thesis on a, a new program, a relatively new program at that time, called the Federal Food Stamp Program. And uh, as luck would have it, I ended up at the Department of Agriculture in a very junior level position uh, because they had heard that I had figured out some way to estimate how the food stamp program would grow and they needed a projection on it. Uh, I was only at the USDA for only a very brief amount of time when the phone rang one day and it was uh, uh, Dr. Alice Rivlin who said that uh, she was establishing a new office on Capitol Hill called the Congressional Budget Office and that, this had, and that uh, she heard that I knew something about the food stamp program and it was important because uh, there was going to be a farm bill and they needed people who not only were the theory type and the academic types that she would bring in from Brookings and wherever else, but they also needed people who actually had some practical experience about how these programs worked. Uh, so I ended up at uh, the Congressional Budget Office, I think, in the fall of 1975, and uh, it wasn't that long thereafter to get to the point that uh, Senator Dole called me over to his office, uh, and that was my first uh, uh, time visiting with him directly. And he had a staffer who was working on food, uh, food stamps, child nutrition issues, and uh, that began my relationship and uh, in, in my interaction with him. He was on the Agriculture Committee at the time, and I was... Uh, uh, we began the process of trying to educate as well as learn as to what kinds of changes they were going to do in the upcoming Farm Bill, which I think was the 1977 Farm Bill. And to make a long story short, uh, a major, major issue was being debated in 1975, 70, 77, 78, as I recall, and that was called the Elimination of the Purchase Requirement, EPR. And Senator Dole and Senator McGovern were instrumental in a bipartisan way to do away with the, uh, uh, eliminate what we call the purchase requirement as a portion of the, of the federal food stamp program, not going a lot of, but this was a big, big change. And it was my job at CBO working with Senator McGovern, Senator Dole, uh, to estimate what the cost and impact of that to the winners and the losers of that kind of a proposal. So my early uh, interaction with him was right off the gun, right into the 
right into the fire, if you like, uh, working on the farm bill that he was on the Agriculture Senate Agriculture Committee and a very major piece of legislation to, to change a program that he was uh, clearly very supportive of uh, the federal food stamp program. Um, and how was he as a senator to work with? <laughs> Uh, over the years, I got to know him better, and uh, uh, he was uh, uh, in very enjoyable, let's put it that way. He was always, uh, uh, I never had any hard, uh, um, there were, if he got mad, it usually wasn't at the staff, it usually was at a colleague, which I did see happen a couple of times. Uh, but, uh, uh, and, and like all, human beings. He had his ups and downs, and uh, but I enjoyed working with him. Uh, we had a good working relationship. Uh, and of course, I'm sure you've heard this from other people you've interviewed. I always, for staff, it was always he'd come in, he'd get the big picture. Uh, as he left the room, he would usually say, work it out. And, and that's what we did. And you felt honored to be able to work it out for him and to solve the problems. But I enjoyed working with him over those years, many years, many, many years. What about uh, the farm policy during that time and his commitment to it? Can you make some statements about that? Oh, oh boy, the memory is, of course, uh, not what it should be for going back that far. But uh, I came from the Midwest. I came from Indiana. I, was a far I grew up on the farm. Uh, and uh, so I had a certain affection, I guess, to the Midwest and to the Upper Plains. And, and I understood, I learned very quickly that um, farm bills, no different in 1970s as it is in the 2000s, that it's not so much a matter of politics, it's a matter of political affiliation, it's a matter of what region of the country <laughs> you come from. And uh, being a Growing up on a farm with corn and soybeans and wheat, I was uh, probably leaned more towards Senator Dole's position on wheat and corn than on cotton and rice. And, uh, but uh, uh, primarily, I thought the interesting thing, the part about the farm bill, which always interested me with Senator Dole, was his interest in the, in the nutrition side of it and the low income and the interest of, of distribution of. Uh, making sure that uh, the WIC program, Women, Infants, Children. Hubert Humphrey was on the committee at that time, and I remember him working very closely with Senator Humphrey uh, on, on a program called the Women, Infants, and Children program, the WIC program. And, uh, and I, I guess I, I thought uh, at least, uh, yes, he had a keen interest in, in the commodities, but he also had probably more as equally as important interest in the broader issue of income security and uh, food security broadly broadly uh, 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 across the United States. As an economist, uh, how did you look upon the subsidy aspect of these farm bills? Uh, I am, um, as an economist and also as a, uh, a, uh, a budgeteer, I looked upon these uh, subsidies and, in fact, still do to this day, as uh, 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 unfortunately uh, un uh, inappropriately targeted, let me put it that way. Uh, I think there is a need for a safety net. Uh, I think there's a need to maintain uh, rural communities. I think there's a real main, uh, I, I just 
from a small family farm that I come from, I still have that desire to maintain the small family farm. But I think what has happened with the subsidies is they have been, uh, quite frankly, a, 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 a have worked to the to the detriment of the small farm, and they have driven up the price of land to the extent that it basically has now become much more of a corporate farming, a much larger operation. And 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 I think that's, uh, you know, I don't begrudge anybody of the of, uh, of making money, but I think it uh, I think the uh, the federal subsidies have precipitated a distributional problem for the farms and out there and um, and I think that's uh, so I, I would say that we have probably spent far too much in the way of certain subsidies particularly uh, here we go again uh, on the cotton the rice and the, and the, and the southern commodities are uh, relative to the wheat and corn and it's a, it's a much different situation it's a it's a delicate balance I also think that uh, uh, I think there is uh, a justification for some of our friends overseas uh, to criticize our subsidy mechanisms as being unfair in terms of trade. Uh, I would not, I, I'd say the same argument can apply to the EU, but uh, generally uh, there is a real need to balance this out in terms of our subsidy mechanisms. I don't see it changing, though, very soon. The word entitlement almost comes up. Oh, it does. It does. And in fact, as you'll recall, I'm sure, again, in some place in this history, you're going to find that I always loved that story. You know, everybody will have many, many stories about Bob Dole and his wonderful ability to bring out uh, uh, humor in his uh, approach to uh, that kind of dry, sarcastic humor that he had uh, about the, the, when the plane load of uh, farmers flew into Hawaii for a vacation and the, uh, when they shut off the engine stopped whining the only thing still whining on the plane were the farmers and uh, I, I, I think he understood the same problem <laughs> uh, uh, and I can say that as a farmer and I can also say that as one who we try to we do not take the subsidies and we avoid the subsidies ourselves um. Some people have made the suggestion that uh, Bob Dole was pretty much doing the beck and call of some of the big agribusinesses. What was your thought on that? Well, um, if he was, I was unaware of it. It would have been at a different level than I was directly involved at that point in my career. Um, I, I guess that I, I didn't see that, so I, I really don't have a good comment about it, if, if it's true or not. And how did uh, Dole, as a representative of a farm state, uh, was he a typical Republican in that regard, or was he not sort of, mm -hmm. in some areas, more a Democrat? Or how, how did you well, uh, my first exposure to as a young staffer on Capitol Hill was I thought this is the way everything got done on Capitol Hill, that uh, Democrats worked with the Republicans, uh, Bob Dole worked with uh, George McGovern, a quote conservative versed with the liberal. I thought that's how things got done in this town and wish it did today. But <laughs> uh, And so my 
uh, my observation was immediately I just accepted this is the way people work. Yes, they are from the rural area, but uh, he was willing to work with uh, with the urban uh, representatives of, on something that, that would be important to them, such as food uh, stamps or child nutrition or school lunches. Uh, and at the same time, that was a trade-off for maybe getting a little bit more of a support for some of his uh, more traditional agriculture programs. And I thought it was the classic way you governed in this town and, and by, by, uh, um, by working within the center, if you like. Um, and so I, I guess, at, while I was at Congressional Budget Office, I was I designated as non-designated in terms of a political affiliation, and uh, so uh, I didn't try to say I was a Republican or a Democrat. Um, uh, though my and I come from a, a, a that my father was a die-hard Republican. My mother, to bless her heart, still. Uh, 93 in Indiana is still kicking uh, quite nicely, and she's diehard Democrat, and so I just kind of went right down the middle, and so I thought this was the way to work in this town. But I saw the longer you stayed here, you probably had to take a take at least a party affiliation, or at least associate a little bit more as you went along. Uh, for some, uh, in fact, I almost was thrown into it, which is the transition to. Really, when I got to know Senator Dole much better, when I became the administrator of the Food and Nutrition Service in 1981. So, talk about that. Uh, because of all my work, I guess, on the Hill in the food nutrition area, uh, uh, I uh, and and because of, uh, uh, I guess, getting to know some of the key players in this town in that area. Uh, when uh, Ronald Reagan was elected president, uh, one of the assistant secretaries that was brought down was a Mary Jarrett, who worked on the House Agriculture Committee with, uh, uh, under, well, Tom Foley had been the chairman. And uh, <clears throat> Mary, I'd worked again on both sides of the Dome, and I'd worked with the House Republicans as House Democrats, and I got to, and got to know this Mary Jarrett, and she called me up and asked to, uh, if I would uh, come down and be the administrator of the Food Nutrition Service, FNS. Just as a sidebar, that's the same agency that I'd come to this town as a lowly GS nine or something about eight years earlier and working in the bowels of that organization and then eight years later came back as the administrator. Kind of a shocker, um, but it was my, but it was a, a, an opportunity I couldn't pass up. So I came back uh, and became a young administrator of this very large agency. John Block was the Secretary of Agriculture and I think John always just, uh, had a kind of a hard hard feelings about the Food Nutrition Service because it represented something like 75% of the Department of Agriculture's budget. It was food stamps, it was child nutrition, it was all the nutrition programs uh, because that's where the money was, uh, more so than in the commodity programs of the agriculture, traditional agriculture. 
But uh, I'll try to get to this real quickly if I can. What happened was that uh, one of the last pieces of legislation I worked on on Capitol Hill was a reconciliation bill uh, under Jimmy Carter. It's his last, one of his last pieces. And this goes back to the budget area and lots of things going on in the budget area. But one of the last pieces of uh, legislation that uh, President Carter and the Democratic-controlled Congress wanted to do was to reduce the deficit. As you remember, there was this pressure at Ronald Reagan. We have a deficit of $71 billion. It became a political issue. So I think in order to show that our muscle, uh, the Democratic-controlled Congress, as well as President Carter said, we've got to do something about reducing spending. And one of the items in this reconciliation bill was a reduction in the school lunch program for the non-needy student. It was, I think, a two and a half cents or a nickel off the non-needy reimbursement. We reimburse every school lunch in this country. At that time, my recollection is around about 25 cents for the non-needy. Um, and that was a federal subsidy. And so one of the ways to save a little bit of money was to reduce that subsidy. As I say, I think it was about a nickel. Uh, that was in this big reconciliation bill that, that was passed, became law. Unfortunately, Mr. Carter, or to his unfortunate, he loses uh, to Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan comes in. I come down along with the other people who had worked on the Hill, and all of a sudden the law that I worked on to pass on Capitol Hill, now I'm thrust into the agency that has to implement that law. And because the Food Nutrition Service not only has the food stamps, but also has jurisdiction over the school lunch program in this country. So uh, this, this, uh, this is the story. Uh, it will, someday I'll write a book about it. Um, as a young administrator, I said, I was said, the law is handed to me, I'm supposed to reduce these subsidies. Well, I go out and I start talking to the various people out in the, in the, that manage and operate these programs. They said, listen, we don't mind if you want to reduce it, but give us more flexibility in what qualifies for the subsidy of the school. She had a certain amount of protein, a certain amount of dairy product, a certain amount of bread product, right down the line you had to have. And uh, so I, I recall going out uh, to meet with my regional people in San Francisco, and they said, listen, uh, if you're going to have to reduce the subsidy, fine. But let us at least use uh, tofu. We have a lot of Asian students. They like tofu uh, in their school, school lunch. It doesn't qualify now for reimbursement. It is a protein. It's just as good as meat. Uh, it's probably healthier for us. Let's go ahead. Let us do that. Fine. Okay. So we'll go back and change it. Uh, then we ran into some people who said, "Listen, you have a uh, uh, you don't let us uh, credit yogurt uh, against the school lunch program, a dairy product. Uh, why can't we use yogurt?" I said, "I don't know. I don't like. I like yogurt too. It's fine." Uh, so let's do that. A couple of these things went along, and I quickly find out that I had, uh, uh, I said, let's just change the regulations. We're going to reduce this reimbursement rate by a nickel, but let's give these schools uh, an opportunity to be more flexible in their school lunch programs and, and give them what they want. 
And uh, lo and behold, I, I, didn't, I learned my first lesson as a young uh, administrator in this town is number one, you never issue controversial regulations in the month of August because uh, uh, nothing's going on in this town and that becomes headline. And second thing was what I had done was I had sufficiently ticked off the American Dairy Association because yogurt is a low-fat, low-dairy, low-fat uh, product and uh, a dairy price support in this country is determined based upon fat content. So I made the dairy people mad. Uh, on yogurt or on, on tofu, uh, I, uh, because I was substituting soy basically for meat, I sufficiently ticked off the American Meat Association, American Pork Association and everybody and chickens and everybody else in this town. End product was the regulation to the fourth. There was a small uh, the regulations are very thick. I didn't read every line, but there was something in one of the regulations that suggested, made a suggestion to somebody that uh, ketchup could be credited as a vegetable, a condiment as a vegetable. And that got blown out of proportion. It never was really in there. Uh, but there was something wrong with the way the regulations were written. It blew up. Uh, by the time they came back from the August recess, we had these very large uh, senators sitting down with very small hamburgers and ketchup as a vegetable and cameras running all over the place. And uh, it was an embarrassment to the president. Uh, I would also say Nancy Reagan bought an awful lot of uh, expensive china that uh, August, which didn't help uh, also. But it was it, it, Ronald Reagan was out to, to screw the poor. And that certainly wasn't my objective, but it was the way in which things evolved. The regulations were withdrawn. Uh, I was uh, I was accused of having uh, sabotaged the president. Uh, I remained on as the administrator until late that year, early 1982. Uh, then I received a phone call from David Stockman and. Uh, Jim Miller, OMB, saying that, uh, that uh, told John Block, and John Block called me that we had to, I had to step down as the administrator. Block was going to take, he was going to fire me. Apparently, at this particular time, uh, I had kept Mr. I had kept Senator Dole informed. He his staff were, were with me. They understood what I was going through. Uh, Senator Dole apparently intervened, asked that we. Uh, asked John Block not to just throw me out on the street. Uh, he made me a special assistant for a while, and then all of a sudden um, uh, I received a phone call in August of 1982, or sometime along that line, from uh, the Senate Budget Committee. And Senator Domenici, who was a friend of Senator Dole, Senator Dole said, you've got an opening over there, you need an agricultural economist. Uh, bring Hoagland back to the hill. And uh, so Senator Dole was my savior uh, and uh, basically brought me back to the hill where uh, I became um, and worked on budgets for the rest of my career on Capitol Hill. It had to do with ketchup as a vegetable. <laughs> well, let me just get it straight on that. Actually, in the, in the bill, ketchup was specifically being referenced to. In the regulations, uh, in the regulations that you implement 
the bill, the bill never, the, the, the statutory bill that passed the Congress, all it did was to lower the reimbursement rate and some phrase about provide flexibility in terms of the crediting. The regulations that we issued to implement the law did not say ketchup was a vegetable, but had uh, had a line that was not written very well, I, I presume, by our lawyers that indicated that condiments could lettuce, and, I don't know, tomatoes, whatever, put on a hamburger might qualify as toward the vegetable. And I think it was the, that, that some that these groups that didn't like the regulations because of yogurt and because of to- tofu, ha-ha, let's go after that. Let's say ketchup. Is, that says ketchup is a vegetable. and So they could blow up the regulations so that we wouldn't credit yogurt and tofu. And that's it's a rough, it's a rough town. It taught me a lesson. Okay, so... And then back to the hill. Back to the hill, and... Uh, and by then, now, we're definitely into uh, working with uh, Senator Domenici, who I'd never met before, never been to New Mexico uh, in my entire life, and uh, Senator Domenici uh, had me come back, and I was handling his... Uh, um, some of his agriculture, agriculture issues, traditional agriculture, they want to kind of keep me away from the school lunch program. <laughs> And uh, uh, we uh, um, began a career working with that. And that's exactly the time then when uh, Senator Dole uh, had, uh, was the chairman of the Finance Committee, I believe, at that time. Uh, Howard Baker was the majority leader. Uh, Senator Domenici was the new young uh, chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. And we began uh, what I, uh, we were, we, I had arrived after the uh, major uh, reconciliation bill of 1981 that was the big deficit reduction, but then we started modifying it, and uh, this is when we we had a lot of working uh, between Senator Domenici and Senator Dole, and Senator Baker and I, and uh, other staff, and I was, at that time, was, was, was handling more of the agriculture stuff, but eventually I quickly moved in to become the deputy staff director, so I became uh, more involved in broader issues, um, uh, modifications to the Reconciliation Act, DEFRA, TEFRA, and all the other uh, acronyms that came along thereafter. And most of that time I recall confrontation of some sort between Republican leadership and Ronald Reagan. Uh, over, uh, over, uh, uh, the, uh, he, uh, the deficit was growing, despite to the, despite our effort, better efforts, and uh, Senator Dole, I remember three to one. He always wanted a three to one. We'll do three dollars worth of reduction in spending for one dollar increase in taxes, which was a, which was a compromise, and uh, that's and we spent a lot of time working on that throughout the night. Mid 1980s, uh, deficit continued to grow. We were in a little recession, started to come out of it, and uh, then by 1985, uh, there was a uh, uh, Senator Dole and Senator Domenici worked on again trying to get that deficit down, fiscally responsible, uh, worked out an agreement uh, that uh, that 
finally passed the Senate uh, budget resolution implementation. It passed the Senate by one vote about 2 o'clock in the morning uh, with Pete Wilson of California being rolled in on a gurney and uh, the vote was as was was perceived as a vote to cut Social Security, which it really didn't cut. It simply froze for one year reimbursement of uh, the COLA. And uh, it passed, and that was kind of the, the dull, diminishy, let's get this deficit under control. Uh, the, the budget resolution went to the to the House side, and I, Tip O'Neill and President Ronald Reagan, the Irishman, got together basically and undercut, as, I, as the story's been told to me, uh, undercut Senator Dole and Senator Domenici, uh, and has uh, um, claimed that it was because of that vote um, that that's the reason that the Republicans lost control of the Senate in 1986, I believe it was. Um, but Senator Doe was still there. Uh, came back, I guess, as a leader later as a, as the leader, and we. Uh, I'm still there. Domenici's still there. We're still we're still fighting the battle to control the deficit. Um, describe the a little bit more the, the the sort of forces of contention here. Uh, who's going after who? What what? What's it all about? Well, um, I think during, particularly during the 80s and early 90s, up and through the 1990s, <coughs> and Ronald Reagan, George Bush won, there was a, there was a group, which I, I uh, a large majority of the Republican caucus in the Senate did believe that deficits matter, uh, that did see that as their responsibility for legacy for the future. And uh, I put Bob Packwood into that category, um, John, uh, Jack Danforth, Sam Nunn, Lawton Childs, I mean, across the aisle. It was, it was, there was a I mean, Republicans as well. There was a there was a good group that saw, yeah, we had to balance our revenues with our expenditures. Uh, didn't mean that we all wanted to wanted to uh, go out and uh, just whack the heck out of all spending, but to recognize that there had to be a balance. Uh, but then there was a group that I boy, this is uh, Brian. I may be going out on the limb here. But slowly we started to find these, what I would, the, the, the new supply side economists, supposedly, and the supply side senators. Some of them new to the Senate having arrived from the House of Representatives, who, who bought the argument that you didn't, deficits weren't important. What mattered was just spending. And if you ran a deficit, fine, because you could grow the economy by reducing taxes. And, uh, and the heck with the deficit. 
And I'd say that during that period of time, as I look back on it from about the mid-1980s until mid-1990s, there was this friction. Um, I said I recall a couple of, you know, you always want to forget the bad things and remember the great times we had together. We had some great times, all of us. But I do recall uh, I shouldn't have been in the room. No staff should have been in the room. Um, you'll have to ask Senator Dole about this if he'll remember it. But we had what we call, we had on these, every Tuesday in the United States Senate, they have their party caucuses, luncheons, the policy lunches, they call them. I hardly ever saw any policy developed in those luncheons, to be honest with you, but at least they had these policies. But what really happened before the policy lunch is there was a lead, kind of a leadership meeting as well as sometimes they did did have a, a real conference before the lunch. And we were, uh, they, uh, Senator Dole would clear out his, off, his, his big office there. I couldn't quite understand why, but he would clear it out because either we couldn't get into a certain room and set up um, folding chairs, and the senators would come in. And um, I don't remember exactly what the issue was, but it was along these lines, I think, of tax cuts versus spending versus deficit reductions. And, that uh, Malcolm Wallop and Senator Doe got into it, and, and I've never, I've never seen Senator Doe as angry as he was with Senator Wallop. To the extent they said, he told him, "If you want to run for the, if you think you can beat me, go right ahead, run for this job." And I, oh, I thought, oh boy, the staff had better get out of the room, but we weren't. And it was tense. I, I, I don't know. I didn't know Senator Wallop that well. I don't know him that well. Um, but he rubbed Senator Dole wrong on something big. And, all, and, and the only reason I raise that as a story is there was this tension. And you got, with all, he's my friend. I still I wish him the best. But Senator Locke, a new senator from the we had these uh, Senator Santorum. Uh, we had these young kind of supply side uh, Republicans that started to infiltrate the Senate, and it didn't quite become. It, it didn't. It started to lose a little bit of that reaching across the aisle. The George McGovern, the Bob Dole, and if you reached across the aisle, there was something wrong with you. You were undermining your party. You were you, you were undercutting your party. And, and I, I just kind of saw that partisanship develop uh, throughout that period of time. And I think it made it much more difficult to find a deal, strike a deal, when, when that's what you had to do. And it became, it, it, with a very closely divided Senate, uh, it, uh, it became a problem. The good news is uh, that then maybe it's when you have a divided government, a Democrat in the White House and a Republican-controlled uh, Congress. By in 1990, uh, we uh, for for George Bush left. But again, this was another reason for criticism later on. Let's see if I can get to the point. Is that in 1990 we had another budget deal uh, out at the Andrews Air Force Base, 
Rodeau was there. Uh, he loved, he loved, I'm just as a sidebar, and he'll admit to this, there was, a, they, they, we were sequestered away at Andrews Air Force Base to work out in the fall of 1990 a budget deal because we had run into a problem with uh, Graham Redmond had failed and it was being expiring and trying to extend it. And I hope I've got all, you, you go back and correct my facts on dates, I hope, <laughs> but but we were out, out there at Andrews Air Force Base and we eventually worked out a deal in a bipartisan manner, Republicans and Democrats. Tom Foley, I believe, was the speaker at that particular time. Uh, Bob Byrd was the ranking or the, the ranking re Democrat in the in the Senate. Bob Dole, majority leader. Uh, Denny ha uh, not Denny Hester, to, uh, Michael Michael, uh, uh, majority uh, Republican leader in the House, and we finally worked out a deal. Now, Dick Darman was heavily involved in this, criticized later for it, but it uh, we we had some tax increases. Uh, and we put the, but we put this package. It wasn't much of a tax increase. I think it was a few few hundred million dollars, uh, um, but it, but not relative uh, compared to the savings that we were getting. It was pretty small on the spending side. Uh, that that package finally worked it out. Came back to the house and a backbencher uh, on the house side by the name of Newt Gingrich killed that agreement. And we had to go back and kind of renegotiate one element of it. Uh, and I think that was kind of an indication to me that things were changing in the House. Uh, and because uh, I, I think that relationship, I, I jumped over it, but I always thought that was an interesting kind of a coincidence of history that, as you'll recall, when I first started on the Hill and I was talking about Senator Dole being on the Agriculture Committee, Tom Foley was the chairman of the House uh, Agriculture Committee. Again, two, Kansas, or two, two wheat-growing uh, uh, states. Uh, and I thought that it's interesting how they had come up to be speaker and uh, majority leader about the same time. Uh, anyway, that was, again, another indication to me that things were going to be a problem in the future. Then we had us, and because we had raised taxes, supposedly violating "Read My Lips," uh, uh, George Bush, uh, I think that's uh, that was used as as, as one of the uh, excuses for why Republicans lost the White House, and again another reason for rep conservative Republicans to be mad at Bob Dole and Pete Domenici and for having made a deal that uh, lost the White House. And, uh, and but then we moved into the Clinton years, and uh, as I say, uh, we, the first Clinton, and I think probably a reaction to the Clinton, uh, to the to the the outcome of the 1990 budget agreement and the criticisms Republicans received, uh, Republicans stayed out of the debate in 1993, 93, 90, yeah, 90, we've been 93, right? And uh, and so when Clinton put his first major budget package up here, passed the Senate uh, eventually in the fall with Al Gore sitting in the chair as vice president, uh, breaking the tie, and uh, no with no Republican support. And so it was all Democratic uh, 
control, did a big package. Uh, Mr. Mr. Clinton uh, gets uh, gets into hot water over that later on, loses some of the midterm. We come back into the majority, and now a deal. Uh, now Clinton has to deal with Bob Dole and uh, uh, Gingrich and the contract uh, with America, and we worked out eventually after a long time and with some real uh, difficulty between, I believe, Senator, not believe, I know, between Senator Dole and Senator Gen and, and, and Speaker Gendrich ended up having a, uh, um, a an agreement reached in the uh, fall of uh, well, 1997 after government shutdown almost exactly uh, almost exactly this time of the year uh, where we went through the government shutdown because we were unable to reach an agreement somewhat. That's what worried me. Well, bring it to today. That's worried me about what I see up there today with 11 appropriation bills not done. We're three weeks out from Christmas, the same kind of environment that we went through at that time. Really tough. But uh, uh, Gingr uh, uh, Dole was willing to sit down and work with the White House more so than was Gingrich, and eventually, and I think I think Senator Dole also, I know for a fact, uh, felt that the House had kind of pushed it too far anyway, and there was a time to cut a deal, um, but eventually got there in 1997, and kind of the pinnacle, at least, you know, I'll take it away from Senator Dole, but certainly pinnacle for Senator Domenici and myself that we finally got to a balanced budget agreement. Um, and we did get to a balanced budget. Um, now there are other factors involved like a booming economy and a few other things, but uh, but we will, but it, was, it, it showed that you, that uh, um, that uh, partisanship could be set aside, that uh, the art of politics works and sometimes, at least if you believe that uh, deficits do matter, and that the fiscal policy does matter. That's a great recitation of a lot of a lot of history. Well, I already had. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Um, no, very, very good. Well, let's go back, and I want to pick up just a few things. Where was David Stockman in terms of your coming on the budget? Had he already come and gone, or he was still in place when you joined the budget? He, when I was uh, in the Congressional Budget Office, he was a young congressman from Michigan and the House of Representatives, and he came to become 1981 the OMB director at about the same time I became the administrator of Food Nutrition Service. So I had met and worked with him, and when I came back up to the Hill, yeah, worked with him on some of those early deals uh, with Steve Bell, the staff director, and myself, and Pete Domenici worked with Stockman in 82, 83, 84. I think he left about 84, 85, something like that. We're a long way away, really, from that era. Uh, so again, uh, as an economist, what was, what is your take on the argument that supply side produces enough revenue to keep government moving? Well, I think I think that, as is always the case, the truth is somewhere. There's there, there's there's elements of truth in all of it. 
I think there are certain tax cuts, certain uh, certain provisions, uh, certain elements of the tax code, particularly uh, on the investment side, that uh, lowering the cost of capital can result in increased investment, increased growth. Uh, I think uh, I'm not entirely convinced that uh, capital gains to the individual are necessarily uh, uh, will necessarily result in increased investment. I'm sure there's elements of it. I think if the argument is simply lowering uh, the marginal tax rates uh, on the labor supply side, uh, I don't think that has quite the boom that people expect. I, I, so, I, I, so I think, as I, I like, as I say, there, the, the truth lies someplace in between. Um, but in other words, I guess the answer is not all tax cuts are created equal when it comes to stimulating the economy. Uh, I also I also say the problem is it's it's a, it's an equation it's not linear. Uh, uh, my when I first job given to me on the Hill, when I came to the Budget Committee, was uh, to prove it was the old theory that deficits crowded out private investment. If the government was taking all this in to pay its debt, then there wasn't any private money out there to invest in machinery, equipment, and that. So therefore, that and what what that did was to drive up interest rates for competition to get the credit and get, get the capital, and therefore that was going to be a negative effect. And so therefore, increasing the deficit was a negative effect upon the economy in the long run. I believe, and this is a much better economist, much better people who've studied this, I believe there was truth to that. I think what happened through the late 80s, 90s, and today is something that we've all trying to get our hand around. It's globalization. Capital today flows across those borders in ways that are unimaginable. And so it's no longer a closed economy. Our deficit now is being funded by the Chinese and the Saudis and the people who have the oil wealth that have accumulated the dollars. And so now it's not quite as simple to say, yeah, the deficit's going to lower the growth of the economy. And I think that has made fiscal policy a lot more difficult in terms of the control by the, by the Congress or the President and has probably shifted the ability to control, have an impact on the fiscal economy to monetary policy and back to Mr. Greenspan and Mr. Bernanke today. I think it's, it's to me, you know, again, I'm just a lowly staffer and I don't even consider myself a good economist at all, but I, I just see things change. And Congress and the President and the Federal Reserve and global issues have all changed the way po fiscal policy is developed in this country and should be developed. And, and what's the connection between that and the argument that deficits don't matter? Well, I think the reason uh, why you saw when we were growing deficits coming out in 2001, 2002, went from the largest surpluses to the largest deficits overnight, and people said, but look, I don't see any problems, you know. And the reason why, I think, by 2001, 2002, foreign investment was coming in to fund ours. And so people said, hey, there's the deficit growing. Do you feel it? Do you see any impact it's having on you? It's always short term. 
And I think that was a pure justification for Vice President Cheney to come out in his uh, statement and say, deficits don't matter anymore. Uh, in the short term, if you cut people willing to purchase your debt uh, and you're not Americans, then it probably doesn't have the same impact that it once did if you had a closed economy. And, uh, and so I, that was some justification, I guess, provided for the argument that deficits didn't matter. But at some point... It will. Yeah. What, what, uh, would, you, what would you see? I mean, I my, uh, my, it's the old analogy that I'm sure you've heard in this town. Is, uh, George Schultz, or whoever it was over at Brookings, used to refer to it. Charlie Schultz used to refer to it as it's the proverbial uh, termites under the front porch. Um, sure, you don't see anything today, but one day you might walk out there and uh, fall through the front porch. Uh, I think the problem is is long term. This is the typical problem of this town. Two years is election cycle. Six years is look. We are we are sophisticated enough now to know what the demands are going to be into the future here. At least, particularly on the healthcare side. That's why I'm in this business that I'm in here because I think that's the major driver of our fiscal policy in the long run. And I, I think that that's going to be. I, I think as you go out, it's going to become even more difficult. First of all whether or not credit will be coming, whether or not it's at any, we don't control the Chinese or the Russians or the Japanese, they may just say, hey, I'd rather invest in my own country to improve my environment, to clean up my air in Beijing or whatever. And at some point, uh, we just don't have, the same, we don't have the same freedom that we once had if we are dependent upon foreign investment as the basis for driving our capital growth. I'm not opposed to to globalization at all. In fact, back to the agriculture side, it's important to agriculture that we have trade uh, and global trade. But, uh, but I think what it means is it brings us back to what I think Senator Dole, Senator Domenici, Senator Baker, lots of them looked at and said, you know, in the long run, you've got to balance your revenues against your expenditures. And, and the creation of these entitlements, quote entitlements, basically health care and pension programs in this country, farm programs as another example. You've got to be careful about making these kinds of long-term commitments without knowing where the revenues are going to come from in the future. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're jeopardizing the future of our children, our grandchildren, the usual arguments. Either they're going to have to pay a lot more taxes or they're going to pay a lot more interest, or there's going to be, or they're going to have to cut a lot of programs. Over this period of time we've been talking about, it does seem as if uh, Dole and, and others uh, were constantly trying to have remedial act, take remedial action, and it kept, even though something eventually got passed, like the. Um, Rudman, right, Kramer, Rudman, Hollings. Right, uh, didn't have didn't have lasting effect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, well, uh, it's kind of ex post. How do you look at what would have been the impact if we hadn't done what we did then? I mean, it, 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 it is all, it's one of the problems with this business is always knowing knowing the counterfactual. In other words. Where, where would you be if you hadn't done that? Would it have been worse? Would, have been, would we have hit, hit, a, hit a brick wall earlier or not? Um, 
I think I think it's uh, uh, I think there were lessons learned. Graham Redmond Hollings uh, probably uh, taught us a lot as it relates to how far you can go in terms of mechanically setting rules uh, on spending in this country. Um, and in fact, what we have today uh, operationally has flowed from that. This issue in town today called PAYGO, I've got to pay for my tax cuts or I've got to pay for my expansion entitlement program, not add to it, not worsen the deficit, uh, it is a direct outgrowth of Graham Redmond Hollings. Uh, setting uh, spending limits on the, the discretionary side of the budget, the appropriation side of it, is a direct outgrowth of Graham and Hollings. So I would argue that even though it, it maybe maybe people wouldn't follow the lo logic like I have just outlined to you, that the positive aspects that the Democratic Congress today is embracing tooth and nail on pay-go is a direct result of Bob Doe and his implementation of a fiscal policy that said we should balance our revenues with our expenditures. And so I think he's still having an impact even today with the legacy that was brought about by that legislation that he worked on over those many years. Um, it's a little bit paradoxical, isn't it? Because, I mean, I grew up in a family where the assumption was that people who really knew about money were the Republicans. Yes. <laughs> and the Democrats got lost in all the social uh, business. And yet, what you're outlining here, in a way, is not exactly the kind of fiduciary role that the Republicans have played over the years. Would you agree? Well, I would say that I, I would say that it's changed, particularly for Republicans in this town. And I would say the loss of people like Bob Dole from the Congress and Pete Domenici and Leon Panetta and right down the line on Leon being on the other side of the. Of the uh, Capitol Dome and the other side of the party, I think there, I think that uh, yes, I think there has been a change. And I'm not saying that with any pride at all, as a having worked for Republicans for all my career. Definitely. You mentioned the '97 balanced budget agreement, uh, and I'm going to plead ignorance here because I don't know quite where that is now. Did that have legs then, and what's happened? 1997 Balanced Budget Act grew out of the government shutdown in the winter of 1995, uh, 96, 96. Um, and uh, did it have legs? Yes, it had big legs um, in the sense that uh, it finally, after a confrontation between Newt Gingrich and the House and the contract with America, uh, President uh, Clinton uh, not uh, yielding to uh, demands from a, a Republican-controlled Congress. Uh, what followed after all that confrontation was, okay, step back. Let's let Pete Domenici, Bob Doe sit down and work out something. And by then, our, my friend Newt Gingrich had kind of lost his aura. He got, got his star had started to fall. There were potential challenges to him and his leadership. 
he made some stupid statement getting off a plane uh, that he had to ride on at the back of the plane and, 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 and things. So after we went through that clash, then I like to say the adults took over and uh, they started to work together and they came up with uh, an agreement. Uh, John Kasich was the House Republican, Jack, Jack Spratt. John Spratt, current chairman, good men, uh, uh, worked together to pull together uh, with the president, Bob Rubin, uh, being the Secretary of Treasury at the time, and worked throughout uh, that period of time to put together an agreement. And the agreement uh, did uh, was tough. It had uh, did have some tax cuts, but it also had some major... Um, entitlement reductions, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, some restrictions, heavy restrictions on some of the spending, but it, all, it was a balanced package. And out of that, then, uh, that was adopted in, in both as a blueprint and then as implementation of legislation. And uh, it extended a number of those budget enforcement provisions, caps on spending, PAYGO legislation, emergency designations, a number of those provisions that help provide some fiscal discipline. It was adopted, and we ended up, uh, it was going to take a little, we thought a little longer, 1997 to 2001, we were to get to balance. We got there by end of 1998. Again, not all because of this legislation, because the economy perked up, um, maybe what comes first here, the chicken or the egg. But the fact that Congress could work together, a divided uh, town at the end of Pennsylvania Avenue, may have had some, hey, these guys can actually do something working together, may have had some benefit. And uh, that legislation resulted in us re achieving balance. As I say, it stayed in balance, 1998, 1999, back 2000. In fact, when George, the current president, and Al Gore were running for office. The fact that we had got to balance, uh, the projections were, oh my gosh, we're going to have this surplus as far as the eye can see. Uh, uh, Alan Greenspan comes to the hill, oh, woe is me, I'm not going to have any treasury debt because you guys are going to eliminate the debt in this country. I'm saying facetiously, but he, he, there was something along those lines. And so, in fact, both Al Gore and George Bush one said, this is too much surplus. You, there's Deficits are bad, but surpluses are bad, too. So let's have a tax cut. And obviously, President Bush, at that, at candidate Bush, had a slightly larger tax cut than Al Gore did, projected out to take the surplus. But we could balance the budget without uh, touching Social Security and keep, keep Social Security uh, separate, and in fact, that became the the jargon for a lockbox. We lock away the Social Security surplus at that time. And anyway, make another long story short, uh, 2001, and George Bush walks in. Surplus is projected to be 6.1 trillion dollars. Um, sure, let's put together a tax cut plan, um, has, uh, reduce some of that, return some of that surplus to the American public, and. We did, uh, and uh, I think about we ended up doing about 1.4 trillion dollars assumed over the next 10 years, and 
I had no way of knowing. But then uh, that was uh, nine months, uh, three, or three about three months after enacting that. September 11th comes, things turn. I think we're going to have to stop there. After this break, let's let's just start here. Um, talk just a little bit about Domenici as as chair and a person, your employer for so many years. Uh, well, we like to call him the Italian stallion. <laughs> uh, Senator Domenici is a wonderful, personal individual. Um, as I say, I never had never been to New Mexico, didn't know anything about New Mexico. Uh, growing up in the Midwest, where we grew farm, or grew on the farm corn, I, I recall my first uh, meeting with Senator Domenici was in the Senate dining room. Introduced to me, and we got talking about agriculture policy, and I made some statement about how I couldn't understand why they were growing corn down there in the desert using draining water out of the Ogallala, uh, and competing against that corn was grown in the Midwest without uh, uh, irrigation. And I, to this day, wonder why. I, was able to remain <laughs> as long as I did with him because quickly I understand in the West uh, water is a big issue and I learned a lot. But uh, Senator Domenici um, uh, was, was a wonderful person to work for. I still consider him a, a, a friend. Um, he's had his ups and his downs. He's, um, but uh, he is one of those classic. Uh, individuals who, senators that you're going to miss uh, because he is willing to reach across the aisle and look for compromise and look the other side. And also one who never bought into entirely to the supply side argument, um, but also at the same time felt that deficits did matter and uh, spent a lot of time uh, trying to to recognize that government can do good, uh, as opposed to saying, well, you know, it's all a bunch of crap. He, he, no, he, he understood there was a positive aspect to government. There's a reason for having government. I think he understood that there were programs that probably had outlived their usefulness. We did a lot of uh, trying to array numbers of programs. I think Senator Dole, in fact, asked us to put together a list of 43 programs. It sticks in my mind, 43 programs. There, are there was a list of 43 programs someplace in my file that we identified that we should do away with that simply were no longer required in, the, in, in modern age. I'm sure it's even more today. But uh, so there was a willingness to recognize, but at the same time, really not willingness to recognize that people uh, needed government, and that there were people out there that had to depend upon government uh, for their livelihood in terms of just basic subsistence. So, um, and I think that grows comes in part because of the his background, growing up in a as a one of uh, eight children, I believe, in an immigrant immigrant family in Albuquerque, New Mexico. How many of those 43 programs on that list do you think ever did get eliminated? Uh, I think there's about two of them, as I recall. <laughs> I can almost name them, too. <laughs> um, did it surprise you when Dole, uh, the story, as I understand it, is informed Bill Clinton at the beginning of his administration that he just wasn't going to count on Republican votes in the Senate? Uh, did not surprise me because of my, as I, I related earlier, it seems to me 
that that grew out of an awful lot of criticism that Senator Dole and Republicans took in the 1990 with the violating the Read My Lips. Uh, um, uh, a lot of, lot of uh, no reward to, to, for do, having done the right thing. I did, there was no reward in it. And uh, I believe that uh, you start to see that. In fact, I, I, I've seen that, I saw that with Senator Domenici too, got to the point where, you know, I try to do the right thing and to what benefit is it? And so if you want to go, you're, do it on your own. And, and that, I did, it surprised me. No, no kidding. Yes, it surprised me. Uh, but at the same time, I can, as a human being, I can understand that. At some point, you just throw up your hands and say, I try to do the right thing. It doesn't make any difference. Nobody, you don't get any credit for doing the right thing. It has eat the tough things around here. And I'm, you know, I'm a politician. I like to make people happy, so heck with it. So I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. And what about the government shutdown? What? That was, I think that was really uh, bothered Senator Dole. Um, <laughs> I remember having, uh, having going down to the White House, having this hangout in the Roosevelt Room. I don't know if I should say this, but uh, you may want to edit this out. I'll never forget that Senator Dole came back. He sent, we came back one time, and he was very disappointed. Uh, it was December, winter, snow was falling. He had to get to New Hampshire to campaign. He couldn't get out of the White House. And he came back and, and, and told me and Senator Domenici said that they just that place is a, a trash heap. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, the White House. I mean, is, the bathrooms are dirty. The, it's not clean. There's trash around. Uh, I didn't notice it, but I, it was, it, he's such a meticulous individual uh, that uh, he he picked up on it rather quickly. That. Uh, he spent a lot of time down there. We were sequestered down at the White House for a long time during that government shutdown, trying to work out a deal. And uh, first of all, he didn't want it to shut down. He didn't want it to happen. He thought that had been hoisted upon him by uh, by the House, and, uh, and so I think he was very disappointed. In it. And I think he he tried. He really tried uh, to get that shutdown over with a lot quicker than it was. And. Uh, Kept running into resistance from the House, so I think I think he didn't see that as any any way to run a government. Of course, you mentioned at one point quite a while ago something about the great times. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't think great times, as much as they are times that stick in my memory. I happen to have been on the floor. I just happened to have been on the floor being the Senate couch uh, back where the Senate staffs sit. And I don't know if this falls into the great category, but certainly very memorable for me. And Senator Dole, always so jovial, always so fun, even, even under the hardest times, comes through the back door and stands at his desk, which was at the back of the chamber at that time. And I don't this must have been 19, in the mid-1980s. And he was not himself. And I couldn't, what's, wonder what's going to happen. And he got the floor, and he began a speech. And he broke down in tears. And I'd never seen this before from Senator Dole. And he was giving the eulogy, or giving um, a speech, 
about the doctor who had worked on him during the war, who had passed away. Um, those kinds of things really stuck in my memory. The times when the emotions were so high in terms and so but so real. They said, you know, it's, it's a human being. Yes, it's Bob Dole. Yes, it, but it's a human being. And um, the passage of friends. Uh, John Hines. Um, I don't know. John Hines, uh, Senator Hines, and Senator Dole always got along that well, but they were. They were friends. They were on the finance committee. They worked on Social Security a lot. Senator Moynihan. These were, these were, to me, for a young, or maybe young by then, but for this is what it was all about. Uh, that these were, the, these people worked to to uh, for the betterment of the country. And I just thought, to me, it was the great times because. It was what I came to this town thinking was what should happen. And I'm afraid that the average person out there watching C-SPAN or whatever never really sees this this side of Washington as much as they should. Maybe I'm wrong on that, I don't know. The ability to, when we, when we reached an agreement, when we did a budget resolution, at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, Senator Dole loved to go late at night. Some of his best work was done early in the morning. When we passed something by one boat, when we wheeled in Pete Wilson, those were uh, those were amazing uh, high points for for me, and, and I think for Senator Dole too. But it, but they, yes, there was a battle. Yes, they were partisan. Yes, there were times when you clashed. But at the end of the day, you walked away. Not exactly Bob Dole, but I think an element of what Bob Dole um, created. My best memory of the United States Senate was leaving the Senate late, late one night, going down the escalators to get to the tram that took me back to the Dirksen office building. Nobody else around. In front of me there were two United States Senators. I could see who they were from the back. Two elderly United States Senators having difficulty. Jesse Helms and Claiborne Pell, both having real difficulty. And one was helping the other. And I thought politically on a spectrum as far apart as you get, and yet here it was. And that was the kinds of memories I'll always take away of the way. <laughs> and it probably will be that way too in the future. But that's the kind of Senate that Senator Dole created. You can go out there and fight tooth and nail, but you still were civil to each other. And two elderly senators in the in the autumn of their life willing to help help each other down an escalator and onto a train. Those are just memories that I'll never forget. And thanks for sharing it with us. It's wonderful. Yeah, that's excellent.